forever. Dog. Just between us. Hey. Just between us. Hey. Hello, I'm Allison Raskin. I'm a writer, mental health advocate, and I love to do little dances. Hi, I'm Gabby Don. I'm a writer, bicon, bisexual icon, and ass man, baby. What's that mean? Like, if do you like boobs or butts? Oh, you like a tush. I like a tush. But wait, I wanted to, um, uh, how's your book? You went on your book tour. How was that? And how is it going? Oh, thank you. Um, yes. So I went on my book tour for Overthinking About You, and it was lovely. Uh, there were some mishaps, I'd say. But um, for the most part, it was so wonderful. And I met so many amazing people who like, you know, I think it's like one of the cool things about writing a book like that is like I'm like deeply vulnerable in the book. And then people are like feel comfortable, like kind of being that way back to me. So I like heard so many wonderful stories and like people were just so open and vulnerable and the questions that they would ask in these events like you because you were at one of them like, Mm -hmm. you know, like it's just like. I don't know. It's like not surface level conversations, which is like no. so exciting. And how were the events? They were great. Chicago is probably my favorite. My mom flew out for it. And um, it was just like the bookstore was just sort of packed. I don't think they quite anticipated as many people to be coming to an in-person event, you know, because they haven't a lot of these places like haven't been having in-person stuff mm-hmm. or I'm like the second event they've had since the pandemic. And so it was like so exciting that all these people came out. And for some people, it was like their first time like going to an event either by themselves or like in public or, you know, and mm-hmm. it was just like a, a lovely, lovely experience. Oh, you signed books for everybody. Oh, yeah. And I signed a copy of Bad With Money, uh, your book with my name all over it. So (laughs) really, I really like whatever I marked your area, (laughs) like pissed on your bed or whatever. (laughs) Oh, that's really funny. I love that somebody brought you a copy of my book to sign. That's Mm -hmm. very funny. They very much understood our dynamic and that we would both be delighted by that. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, I'm so glad you got to go on an in-person book tour. I know, right? Like, imagine if it come out like six months earlier or like, I, yeah. you know, I really, really lucked out in the timing of it all. Yeah. Um, I, I obviously wish my knee had been in better shape. You know, I think I mm-hmm. thought that I would be in better physical shape for it. So, you know, I was in these cities, but I couldn't really explore them because I couldn't walk very much. But yeah. um, the events themselves were really lovely because I didn't have to walk. <laughs> <laughs> so everyone should get Allison's book, Overthinking About You. If you missed the in-person event, sucks to suck. Or if you if you missed it or I didn't come to your city, find like venues in your city that have speakers, you know, like I, I really would love to start like doing more events. And I think like I'm actually doing something with like the Jewish book conference. Like, you know, I think mm-hmm. a lot of like JCC's book speakers and authors. And so colleges, right? Colleges. Like if you have a place in your town or city that has guests come to speak, request me and maybe I can come. Libraries. Yeah, I'll, I'll come if they ask. I'm coming. Legion <laughs> halls, yacht clubs. Dave and Busters. <laughs> <laughs> Well, this is Just Between Us, a variety show filled with heartfelt advice, ridiculous games, and brutal honesty. And please book Allison at your local Dave and Buster's. (laughs) How fun for all of us. (laughs) This week, we're asking Bridget Todd some tough questions about marginalized voices on the internet. 
And later, we're going to discuss everyone's favorite topic, the Supreme Court. But first, we have got to answer a listener's question. And you know what that means. Hit it! International question! International question! International question! Anonymous! Claremont, California. Very specific city. It was. And I was also fighting some hiccups during that song. So I'm glad you did a great job. Thank you. (laughs) That's called professionalism. Here at Just Between Us, we power through. We are professional. We also respect rest. Fine. We respect (laughs) rest. Whatever. Okay. Anonymous says, Dear Just Between Us, I have a colleague at my office. We work together closely. We have quickly reached bestie status. Recently, I started to have a crush on her. I don't want to see her like this. To clarify, I don't think there's anything wrong with her. She is wonderful, but we want different things and we work together. What do I do? Also, I have a tendency to have a crush on my friends. What's my deal? Yours, Anonymous. Well, there is something called demisexuality, which I think gets like made fun of a bit because it's like, oh, are you attracted to, you know, it's like people think it's already a thing. But I think a lot of people can only become attracted to someone once they really know them. And because that takes time, that person might end up like being a friend. So there's a difference between that and uh, a difference between not having a lot of boundaries and mistaking platonic love for romantic love, which I've done Almost my entire life. So I don't know. I mean, I'm of two minds. Like, part of me doesn't see anything wrong with crossing the lines of friendship and romantic and sexual and, like, blurring those lines and going back and forth on situations with people. Like, I have friends who I was hooking up with for a little while. Then we went back to being friends. Then, like, we'll probably never hook up again. But we're still friends. But maybe we'll hook up again in the future. I don't know. Like, I have that kind of thing. Are you talking about me? Yeah, Yeah. you. A real real on and off situation, honestly. (laughs) Like, can you imagine? That would be, what a reveal. That would be the biggest reveal of the Just Between Us history. We did make out one time, but that was for a prank. Yeah, I'll do almost anything for a prank. You know, that makes me feel really good about myself. Um, So... (laughs) I, plenty of people would make out with me not for a prank. Anyway, it's fine. Definitely. Whatever, Allison. So millions. I'd say millions. God, I hope so. So I have a lot of friendships like that that are very nebulous. I have been told that that is unusual. And then there are situations where I just confused really liking someone as a person for wanting to date them or wanting to sleep with them. And that was this very unhealthy thing that I did in the past where I was like, I really think this person is so funny. Well, that means I must have sex with them. And it's like, one, humor is not sexually transmitted. Also, there's a really great line in a Nico Case song that I always, that like has really blown my mind about my like 20s, which is she says, this is the whole lyric, but the second part is the one that really hits for me where she says, I left home and I faked my ID. I fucked every man that I wanted to be. And like, Mm. I think that that is something, right, where you confuse like, wow, I really like this person. I really admire qualities about them and I would like to be more like them. Should probably have sex with them. Like, that's not, (laughs) that's not good boundaries. That's not healthy understanding of like friendship or what you want from people or how to make people like you. 
But I do also understand like getting to know someone and being like, maybe they're my person, you know? It's interesting. You know, I think that the way that I read and interpreted my answer to this question is so different than what I would have thought in the past. But Mm -hmm. now I'm sort of like, well, who cares if you like them? It doesn't mean anything (laughs) needs to happen. Do you know, like a lot of people are in monogamous relationships and then they are attracted to other people and they flirt with other people, but it's never going to cross that boundary. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, it's just an okay thing that you're attracted to them and that you're, you know, and that maybe you have like little butterflies or little things happen. But if you know that there's no real future with this person and you know that it's not worth risking your working relationship or even your friendship then to just sort of be able to hold these two things at once of like oh I'm attracted to this person we're gonna just be friends like I think that those things are just possible and and instead of fighting those feelings of like why am I attracted to them it's terrible that I'm attracted to them oh what should I do with this feeling sometimes it's like the feeling just exists. We don't need to do anything with it. We could just acknowledge that like, oh yeah, in another situation, maybe in another scenario, another time in my Mm -hmm. life, maybe this is someone that I would date. Mm -hmm. But in this current reality, I'm not going to. And instead, Mm -hmm. I'm just going to enjoy them and enjoy the fact that it's really fun to talk to somebody that you like, whether or not it's romantically or just as a friend. Yeah. And like, also like, sometimes you have hot friends. There's no urgency to me Mm -hmm. about a lot of that. Like, I'll just be like, yeah, this person's hot. And like, uh, you know, I like hanging out with them. And it doesn't have to be so urgent. Life is long. Life is so long. Maybe there's a future where suddenly you're not coworkers. And you're like, you know what? Today's the day we make out. I don't know. I guess the coworker part is hard. But I just think like, what a fun, exciting new friend. Right. It's like the acceptance model. I accept that I'm attracted to them, but I also accept that nothing romantic is going to happen. Right. If you can kind of just accept that those two things are true, then there's no pressure because there's nothing to do about it. Right. Like you don't have to like try to crush down your feelings of attraction and you don't have to like bring up your feelings to them. You could just be like, oh, I'm existing in a world where I'm attracted to my friend and we're but we're also just friends. And that's okay. I think you should have a crush on all of your friends. I think you should have a little crush on all of your friends. Not necessarily a sexual one. No, yeah, because you like like them and you want to hang out with them. You're drawn to them. Like, you know, and I think things change and fluctuate. Like Drew and I met because we were we went on like a couple dates. It was like, Then we decided to just be friends, be platonic friends. And we were like, we're going to be platonic friends for like as long as we can. And we're going to not hook up. That went to the wayside for a a hot minute. But then it was. Wait, when? (laughs) A year ago, more than a year ago. Oh, I didn't know about this. I thought you hooked up at the beginning and then you stopped. But you didn't. You hooked up in the middle. In the middle. While they were living at your house. Yeah. Lila. I know. But then now, like, just what you're talking about this last night, we were like, it really just went right back. Like, it really just was like (laughs) completely like now it's like totally like we would be like, that's crazy. You know, I'm like, she's gorgeous and I love her. And like, you know, like, I think like things fluctuate so wildly that like you should like your friends so much that there's a world in which you're like, if I wasn't me, I would date, you know, no, like I would date them or like I think that they're like, I just think like you should think like your friends are cool and great and and like hot in whatever way. And that they're like, of course, somebody would want to be with that person. Like I, you know, like you see that about them. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, I think the big difference is not having an agenda, right? Because mm-hmm. I think it can be really hurtful when like you find out someone was friends with you, but their intention was to change oh, that dynamic. That definitely. they were that, that they were friends waiting until something changed. Exactly. But if you're just friends with somebody and you have no agenda, you're not actively trying to change the relationship dynamic. And maybe you don't even want to change the relationship yeah. dynamic. And I think that that's fine to have that crush or to feel those feelings. And and like Gabby said, just really expanding our idea of what it means to like, quote unquote, be attracted to somebody. Right. You exactly. Know? Like for better or worse, I'm, I'm as straight as they come. But like I have female friends who I'm like, I'm like a, attracted to in a, in a way where I don't want to physically like touch them. But I find them so beautiful and I love mm-hmm. complimenting them. And I'm and I definitely like love looking at them and the things that they wear and the way that, they, you know, and like, yeah. and I, I feel like a weird desire towards them, but not in the same way that I have felt desire towards people I have dated. And, and so mm-hmm. it's all just so confusing and fluid. But instead of like trying to put that in a box or feel like that means something and that you need to do something about it, then I think you can just sort of like let the feelings exist. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, maybe I'm weird. Like, I think like if in crazy situations, remember you used to talk about getting snowed in in a cabin and like Mm -hmm. you would be like, if you got snowed in with them, would you hook up with them? Like, I feel like if I got snowed in with almost anyone, <laughs> no, but if it was like you're snowed in and it's the apocalypse, I can make it work with m- almost everyone. And that's one of your strengths. <laughs> <laughs> we hope that helped. If you want to submit your international question, you can send it to just between us pod at gmail.com. That's just between us pod at gmail.com. Up next, we've got an exciting interview with our highly esteemed guest, Bridget Todd. So stay tuned. Welcome back to Just Between Us. It's time for the juiciest, most scandalous, controversial segment known to all of podcasting, Tough Questions. This week on the show, we have Bridget Todd, the host of There Are No Girls on the Internet, which was named iHeartRadio's Best Tech Podcast of 2022, and the miniseries Disinformed, a limited series about the spread of dangerous disinformation online. There Are No Girls on the Internet is a podcast about the overlooked ways marginalized voices have been at the heart of technology and the internet from the very beginning. Hi, Bridget. Hello. I'm so excited to be here. What a warm welcome. (laughs) Oh, thank you so much. I write up these little uh, intros for everyone and then I try to deliver them as if I'm like doing the prices right. (laughs) Mission accomplished. (laughs) So I'm so excited to talk to you because, you know, all of us kind of came up on the Internet and, you know, we've seen the power of like being able to build our own fan base and audience. And also, I feel like for me, so much of the way that I view the world is based on these people I follow on Twitter. Um, And so why did you feel like you wanted to start this podcast and really explore this topic of, you know, who really has the power online? Yeah, that's a great place to start. You know, I'm kind of like you. Uh, I I used to say the internet is my hometown. It's where I'm from. Uh, I grew up in a very small town in Midlothian, Virginia. You probably have not heard of it. And when I was there, I grew up just sort of feeling a little bit out of place. And the day that my parents brought me home a computer, this like clunky, monstrous computer that took up half of our desk, uh, it was like they had brought me a pair of wings. And so just as you said, I mean, I, I've seen and experienced the power of the internet, and I know that it is 
people who are historically and traditionally marginalized, Black folks, women, queer folks, trans folks, these are the folks who really make the internet what it is. Not only are we doing the work of making it safer and more inclusive, we're also just making it a, a cooler place to hang out. And so I wanted to create a platform that centered the experience of folks who are so often overlooked or marginalized in conversations about what it means to be online and what, what technology means to all of us. You talk about starting at the very beginning. Where in the beginning was were marginalized people erased? I know people talk about Ada Lovelace and I think Hedy Lamarr's contributions. So like, are, where does it begin? Where we're the history of it and we're just not included in that. Oh, the just as you said, the very, very beginning, there's this amazing tech historian named Claire Evans. And she has this book um, called Broadband about the hidden histories of women in the internet and technology. And as you just said, women were at the ground floor of what it meant to be what, what computing was since the very, very beginning. And so some of the figures, Gabby, that you just pointed out have always been there. Um, you know, if you've seen movies like Hidden Figures or read the book, like you probably know a little bit about what I'm talking about. But our voices have always been there. Like in, in her book, Broadband, Claire Evans dropped this like bomb on me that I did not know that the word kilogirl used to be this standard measure of like the computing power of a woman. And so if a woman could work with mathematics for about an hour, they, you know, determined that to be like a kilogirl, a kilogirl, an hour of computing time uh, that a, a woman working could do. And so, yeah, just the idea that women, we really were the original computers, like human women, we, in the early days, we were the computers do, crunching numbers by hands. I just find that so fascinating. And how do you feel about this kind of pushback against the internet now where people, you know, bring up a lot of the bad aspects? You know, and a lot of times I hear people say that social media is bad, that kids shouldn't be on social media, that it is so terrible for our mental health. And while I totally agree with that, I also think that in a lot of ways it, it can be really helpful. Like you spoke to when you live in these smaller communities where you maybe don't have... IRL community the way the way that you're craving and the internet is the one place to get that. You know, how do you balance the good and the bad that comes with it? Oh, it's such a it's I think that you're exactly right. It's such a tightrope. I think for all the beautiful, powerful, wonderful things and communities that the internet has brought into my life, we also have to talk about the ways that it can be a negative in some really real ways. And so I think in my work, it's really about making sure that the internet can be a place where everybody, particularly people who are traditionally marginalized, can show up safely, can build community safely, can get access to accurate, honest information. When we talk about the internet and the health of the internet, I think it's so easy to talk about it as if it's just something that happens. But in fact, it's like powerful people who make decisions and choices and prioritize things and deprioritize others. And so just remembering that, you know, it's about power and institutions and that people with power need to make choices so that all of us can show up safely online, particularly young people, because frankly, young people deserve it. You know, I, I worry that, that the foundational experiences that I had online that were so important in terms of me discovering my own identity and who I was and my place in the world, I'm so worried that the youth of today have a, have a less safe internet experience and a less safe digital ecosystem than I had when I was first logging on when I was 11 back in like 1990-whatever, right? And so I really want to make sure that young people today are able to have safe experiences because they deserve it. We all do. What kind of changes need to be made for that to happen? 
Oh, what a great a great question. I would say um, I think that we need better moderation policies. I would say like right now, if you look at a platform like Twitter, the moderation policies are all over the place. They're inconsistent. They're not transparent. I think that everybody can kind of agree, no matter what side of the spectrum you're on. Like I know that like conservatives feel like they're being suppressed, but you know uh, progressives feel like we're being suppressed. Clearly, there's some sort of a problem, right? And so I think that first and foremost, better moderation policies, clearer moderation policies and policies that are more transparent. Um, I would also say, you know, really contending with the harm that I think a lot of social media platforms have allowed to go unchecked. Uh, I think that we have to really start the conversation at a place of honesty and transparency. And I don't see a lot of platforms who are coming to the table ready to, to really own the impact of some of these choices that they've made. I mean, you talked earlier about young people. It's like that Wall Street Journal reporting um, sourced by the Facebook whistleblower, Francis Hagan. Like some of the, the harm that they have caused, there needs to be an accounting for that harm if we're going to move forward, I think. And do you trust that people are able to make those changes? I guess that's where I get caught up is like, I'm like, you know, it's still relatively new, but, you know, there's also been this pressure for these changes to happen for quite some time. And I... I, I feel like we haven't figured it out and that it necessarily it hasn't really gotten better. And now with with Elon Musk of it all and his push for what he defines as free speech, like I, I don't know if we're heading in the right direction or not. Yeah. Oh, what a, I mean, I'll, I'll put it this way. I wouldn't be in this work if I wasn't an optimist. I believe in the power of the Internet. I believe in the power of technology to be a transformative force for good and social change and, you know, just good in the world. And I also believe in the power of people who care about the internet and use the internet, like a committed group of weirdos, we can get a lot done, right? And so I don't often have faith in the morality of tech leaders. I don't have a lot of faith in like Mark Zuckerberg to do the right thing, but that's okay because I really have a lot of hope and faith in us as a collective, as a community, and the power that we can bring and the force that we can be when we unite. So uh, it's a little bit of both. What are some examples of that? Oh, my God. So many examples. Well, I would say the the way that people who have been traditionally marginalized have used social media platforms to build power and a voice for ourselves, I think that that's one of the reasons why we see today, you know, platforms like Twitter being this, like, battleground for these kinds of, you know, so-called culture wars and things like that. I think it's because people who have traditionally not had a lot of power and not had a lot of, like, institutional voice and institutional power have been able to, to craft power for ourselves. And so there are so many great examples. Um, one that I'll use is, you know, April Rain, this amazing uh, digital strategist and Black creator, you know, was one day looking at the Oscars nom nominations and saying, this is like a lot of white people. She tweets, Oscar's so white, it starts a movement and it materially changes the conversation around inclusion and diversity in filmmaking and in Hollywood, right? And so that was just like one tweet that she fired up and it started a whole movement. Um, another example would be this like horrible like PR stunt where George Zimmerman was meant to do a, a boxing match uh, against DMX and somebody, a black woman, started the hashtag stop the fight and, you know, Almost overnight, this like PR machine was shut down by like a black woman tweeting a hashtag, right? And so all of these ways that traditionally marginalized people have been able to use technology in the internet to really go up against moneyed forces, powerful forces, like there is nobody more powerful than 
somebody who has been historically shut out of something, who has internet access and a laptop and something to say. And so I, I truly believe in that power. I have seen it come up against powerful institutions time after time and win. No, I love that. And I think it is so important to to see the good and to to not just ignore all the, the wins that these communities are having, you know, despite the losses. And I think so much of the losses have to do with disinformation. So I'd love to sort of to shift a bit into that and and why disinformation is so easy to spread online and how maybe the pandemic made it even worse, if you can speak to that at all. Ooh, how much time do you have? <laughs> we have so much time, Bridget. We need to hear from an expert, please. Yeah, I mean, I, I that one of the reasons why I'm so interested in disinformation is exactly what you just talked about. The pandemic, prior to the pandemic, disinformation was just like something I worked on in my nine to five. And I, I wasn't really attuned to the ways that it was playing out in my own community, in my own family, in my own family group chat. You know, I wasn't even really like aware of it. Then when the pandemic hit, it really opened my eyes about the ways that disinformation had really taken root super close to home for me. And so I have this like very active family group chat. And I noticed that a lot of the things that people in my family were putting in the group chat were just not true. And they were not true in these very specific and insidious ways. So for example, this was around the election. My cousin posted about how, you know, at the height of COVID pre-vaccines, that if you wanted to go vote in person, that you wouldn't be able to do it if you wore a mask because of, you know, they live in the South, they have voter ID. The thinking is that you're, they have to be able to check to see that your ID matches your face. You can't do that with a mask. Ergo, if you go to vote in person, you're essentially risking getting COVID. And I could see the ways that that particular piece of inaccurate information really hit at some very clear traumas and tensions that Black folks have around voting. And so, you know, already, if you are voting in, the, in certain places in the South, you have to show up with an ID, right? And so already that's like, starting from a place of kind of historical baggage and traumas that we legitimately do have in this country. And so the ways that people who are looking to to spread inaccurate information, the way that they craft things where there might be a nugget of truth to what they are saying, Mm -hmm. and that truth really gets at a tension point or a fear point or an anxiety that we Mm -hmm. truly do have That was the first time that I really saw how good these like bad actors and disinformers are and why disinformation and inaccurate information is so effective at taking root. It it really is about exploiting people's most intimate triggers and traumas and baggages and historical legacies to get them to believe something that is not only not true, but oftentimes really harmful. I think with the pandemic, especially, you know, there was this expectation that experts should have all the answers right away. But like, why would they? So of course, as they gathered more information, different things were going to come out, but that just became the signal to people that it wasn't true. And I think Mm -hmm. they couldn't handle the discomfort of, of experts not knowing something. So then they looked for these sources that said things with 100% certainty, even though they were lying or it was completely made Mm -hmm. up. Yeah, that's such an astute point. And we see that time and time again. And there are situations where 
you know, COVID is a, a, a novel virus. And so it's like a, a new thing that we're dealing with. So even medical experts are going to be learning things. They'll say something and then they'll have to correct it or they'll get new information because that we're, we're kind of learning about it in real time. And so I think that bad actors really used the fear and the anxiety and also the distrust that that caused in a lot of people, like rightly so, to seize on it and say, see, that's why you can't trust these people. That's why institutions don't have your back. And the re- just the reality that a lot of people have legitimate reasons to be skeptical of institutions. And so it's this really toxic combination of both being grounded in actual, like, the reality of distrust yeah. and also things being scary and people looking for answers and not feeling like they can get them. Like, I I, I get why people are, are moved by the by inaccurate information. How much of it do you think, because you keep saying bad actors, like how much of it do you think is people that are purposefully doing this and how much is just people like getting caught up? Like Alex Jones is like knows what he's doing, you know, but then I feel like certain other people like don't. Uh, this is a great, this is like, this is a disinformation researcher's dream question. Please so you, answer it, Bridget. You are a researcher. You like set. So there's a, a huge and important distinction between myths and disinformation. Misinformation is exactly what you just said. Someone who is not purposely trying to mislead others. They don't know that the information they're putting out there is not true, right? Or maybe they don't, they haven't really verified it. They're just sharing it just in case. I have so many people in my family who are. God love them, misinformation super spreaders, not out of any kind of malice, but genuinely because they want to share things to keep their community safe. And so, you know, they if they see something about like, oh, a new way that, we, that people are being preyed on is if they put XYZ on your car, you're about to be kidnapped, like run away. Like mm. my family, they share that stuff like no tomorrow, not because they have any kind of genuine malice. It's because they, you know, they don't know if it's true. They don't know if it's not true. You, you may as well share it just to be safe. But when we share things that are not true, even if we're doing it, you know, not from genuine malice, it still creates a system where, you know, inaccurate information is allowed to spread. And we don't, we don't, we're not able to like adequately know what's true and what's not and where we should actually put in, be putting our, our energy and our time when the, our ecosystems are just full of things that are like maybe true, maybe not. So that's a big distinction between disinformation, which is when someone shares inaccurate information purposely to mislead others because they want to cause fear or chaos or confusion. And so when I use the term bad actors, which I use probably way too much, but <laughs> I just think it really like is a term. When I first heard that term, I was like, yes, that's the exact right word for these people. Um, these are people who are sharing inaccurate information because they want to cause problems. You know, whether it's somebody like Alex Jones, who is obviously has a, a financial incentive in making people, you know, believe inaccurate information because he's also selling nonsense supplements or nonsense this or nonsense that. Like people who are scammers, who are lying to others to benefit themselves materially or personally in some way, whether it's a financial incentive or they want to, you know, boost their own public profile by being like a teller of truth, you know, that's also just another form of scamming, right? And so I really always want to highlight that these people are scammers. Like they're they're people who sell you lies to enrich themselves and we should call them what they are. Makes me think about Joe Rogan because I think he kind of toes this weird line where he's someone who's like, oh, I'm just curious about stuff. But like how much do people need to think about 
the the interviews and the platforms that they're giving to people just to say like, oh, we're having a conversation versus we shouldn't even be giving people these platforms in the first place? Oof, I love this question. I mean, listen, we're I'm a podcaster. You all are podcasters. This idea that Joe Rogan likes to fall back on that, you know, I'm not I'm not endorsing these people. I'm just curious about what they have to say. I'm just, you know, I'm just asking questions. I'm just here for a good conversation. I don't know. As podcasters, we know that's BS. Like you <laughs> in, you decide who you invite on your platform and by virtue of including them on your platform, like you're giving you're b- boosting their their platform. Like that's just how mm-hmm. it works. And so I think it's a really convenient narrative that these guests who, you know, are known for spreading lies about COVID, spreading lies about trans people and queer people, spreading lies about women and people of color. It's not like they're just stumbling into the studio and then falling into some headphones and then plop in front of his microphone and then accidentally the show gets into the feed. No, of course not. He is making editorial choices about who he wants to amplify. And I think it really does show the importance and power of having a platform, right? Like I'm a, I'm a like little rinky dink podcaster. And even I take my platform very seriously. And I, I won't, I wouldn't include things that I know to be outright lies because it, it is, you have to be a little bit more responsible than that. And I just refuse to believe that somebody who is a professional podcaster who makes his living and a good living at that doing this would not be able to see the difference between doing that responsibly and then doing that irresponsibly. We're going to take a quick break for ads, but then we'll be right back with our guest. And we're back. It's so hard to, to, because we're talking about our definition of lies, which is hard. Like I keep thinking about Anita Bryant in 1977, who was very famous for being uh, a, a, a homophobic person and had like this huge platform of going around and being like, gay is bad. And that's like a lie that we know, but it's also like her opinion. So then it's just kind of this weird thing where you're like, Ugh, but I don't know. I always just think about how it's like, because there's an audience for it, it, it grows. Absolutely. And I mean, I think that's a really interesting distinction, right? There are all kinds of people who have attitudes and opinions that I don't agree with and that I find odious, right? Mm-hmm. I would say that I'm not I'm not necessarily saying that they should not be able to express those opinions. What I'm saying is that we shouldn't give those opinions. We shouldn't amplify those opinions. Everybody oh, no, has, not yeah. at all. But it just sucks that there is always an audience for that. Oh, yeah. And I mean, that's another thing I think when I when I think about the ways that like social media platforms and digital platforms in general have really failed us as as a public is that there's always going to be an audience ready and willing to amplify hateful lies about people who are marginalized. And part of that is like, you know, just it's just it's just it's always going to be there. And so I think platforms really need to be careful about whether or not they're going to amplify those lies, make it it incentivize trafficking in those lies because it actually materially harms people. It it really, it really does translate to real world harm. And so I completely agree with you that it sucks that these people are out there, but I think it really, really sucks that we have a digital media ecosystem that incentivizes it, that says you can make, you can get attention by it. You can get money from it. If you, you can make this your whole platform and become a celebrity. A hundred percent. Yeah. It's it's not, it's not, it's, it's no good. 
Netflix giving Chappelle platform. It's the New York Times. I mean, all these sort of like our articles that are like, I don't know, maybe kids shouldn't be trans. It's just an opinion piece. Like, I think there's it, it gets legitimized by these places and then it gives these people online you know, the the brazenness to be able to be like, me as well. I also hate trans people. Absolutely. And, and I think it really speaks to, I, I don't know how to put this even. I think we have a real lack of thoughtful, nuanced content and conversation generating about things like gender, race, sexuality. And wh- where there are gaps in like that thoughtful content, Bad actors, liars, hucksters, scammers, they are happy to step in and flood the, flood those gaps with garbage opinions and garbage takes and lies and harmful content. And that's really, I, I think, something that I see a lot. And imagine if instead of treating issues like, I don't know, should trans people be allowed to exist? Or, I don't know, should like women have rights? Imagine if instead of treating these as issues where there are two sides, like, this person says that they want to exist. This person doesn't agree with that. It's like, instead of including, instead of treating that as like both sides are legitimate, what if instead we opened up spaces to have thoughtful, accurate conversations where we could learn about each other? But I just feel like that's not incentivized. What's incentivized is treating them as like a a both sides issue. And I feel like that's why we're getting sort of getting nowhere. Well, I think what we need to get is to a place of like where it's not a two sides issue (laughs) where like it's, you know, like, you know, for somebody where we need to get to a place where like saying that trans kids shouldn't exist is this gets the same reaction as saying schools should be segregated. Like we need to like these baseline things that that you would hope that our society would have would would universally agree upon at this point. Instead, we're like, well, I don't know. The other side has some good points and we should respect them. People still, people still, the people who wanted schools to be segregated, those people are still alive. But they're not talking about it as freely. They're not, they're not at their opinion is not respected in the way that these other opinions that are just as harmful and awful are and given voice to and space for. Because they're seen as academic. That's Mm -hmm. the problem. At least for me, I just because the trans kids issue is so at the forefront for me. It's it's poised as academic. It's like, well, we're just which historically has been the reason behind the disenfranchisement of black people, too. Oh, it's science. It's phrenology. It's you know, it's it's just we've studied like their anatomy. You know what I mean? Like, it's always like these things that start as oh it's just science it's just we're just a- we're just asking academic questions yeah but meanwhile yeah. the entire medical community has approved all of these treatments and advises that exactly. parents step in and help their kids transition so and totally. if a doctor says oh i've touched a black person's head and i've decided what like that we would be like what yes yeah and and i think like i i completely agree and i honestly think i i hate to say it but i think part of this is kind of comes back to some lapses in the disinformation community because I think that most everybody would agree that like, okay, lies about vaccines, lies about COVID, that's medical misinformation and that's a threat to public health. But lies about trans youth, lies about trans people and their health and their, their, you know, their medical realities, that is also a threat to public health. And I think that we have been I think we've been conditioned to see that as like an intellectual, as a space for intellectual debate, as opposed to medical misinformation that is a threat to public health. And I I just think that like, when it comes to 
lies, trafficking and lies about people who are traditionally marginalized. And right now it really is like trans youth, queer youth. I think for so long we have allowed for that to be like a matter for intellectual argument as opposed to, well, trafficking and harmful medical misinformation is dangerous to all to public health just writ large. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think we've allowed we've allowed for the like legitimizing of a certain kind of medical misinformation. I see medical misinformation about gender and youth every day. And mm-hmm. the idea, and like people don't, like platforms certainly don't regulate it at the same way they do other kinds of clear medical misinformation. You know, we've just, we've just let people, we've let bad actors define the public discourse and the public conversation about trans youth as opposed to trans youth themselves or medical professionals. Yeah. And kind of getting back to, you know, why would these larger tech companies like Facebook, like a Twitter, be incentivized to spend the money and the manpower to actually help with this spread of misinformation? It's, it's almost kind of like an ethical, philosophical question to me. They should be incentivized because they should not want to run platforms that are full of hate, lies, harassment, and extremism. You know, like, so they should be incentivized to run platforms that people can show up safely on. They should be incentivized to have their platforms be places where people can reasonably and meaningfully have access to accurate information. You know, and I think that, like, the ways in which these platforms kind of exist as public utilities, I think, is really important. When I I had to figure out where to go in my town to get a COVID test, I went to, like, the mayor's Twitter account to see, you know, where to get my COVID test done, right? And so I think that they should be incentivized not only for the, like, public good, but just because these are the platforms that they run. Like, they shouldn't want to get rich off of a platform that traffics in hate and lies. Mm -hmm. But I don't know if that's enough, which is what sucks. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, like I said, I I think— I agree. I wish that I could just trust wealthy tech leaders to do the right thing. I don't really trust them, but I do trust that people hold their feet to the fire and and hold them to account. And so I think that's why it's so important that people, particularly people who are traditionally marginalized, that, that we see them as accountable to us. These platforms would be nothing without us. We are what makes these platforms what they are. And so therefore, these platforms should be accountable to us. When we come together and demand that they are accountable to us, I think it works. A great example is that in the height of Facebook slash Meta's bad press around the impact that their platform has on youth and young people and their mental health, they were in the midst of rolling out a Instagram specifically for kids. If your product is already causing kids to have warped self-images and poor mental health and suicidal ideation, Why are you rolling out a platform just for them? Clearly, you can't be trusted. And it was the public pressure of parents, of young people saying, no, please don't do this. Stop. That got them to pause that. They may very well come back when the the conversation changes and started again. But that was us. They didn't grow a conscious one day. That was us. We got them to do that. What are your thoughts on government regulation of these companies? Oh, I believe that platforms are so important and so powerful to the point where they can obviously have a big shaping of our democracy. I, this is my personal take, I think that if platforms cannot be left to moderate themselves, I do think there needs to be government intervention. There's all kinds of like 
people who are much smarter than me working on this issue. Um, I work with a community called the Disinformation Defense League, where we're putting out some some policy demands to uh, government. Um, I, I, I think that I would like to see government regulation be part of the conversation if these platforms are unwilling or unable to meaningfully, you know, moderate themselves. I don't know. I get so nervous about the government intervening. I don't know if you know, but I'm I'm the host of uh, Conspiracy Corner, which is a show within this show. And I get nervous about government regulation because I, too, I started on the Internet when I was really young, um, back when you were not supposed to tell anyone who you were. And uh, I was on these forums and I was like learning, you know, about queerness, basically, through a lot of that stuff that my parents didn't know about and everything. And I don't know, like, I worry about it, the things that are allowed to be talked about online being contingent on who's in office. Oh, yes. That is a very real concern. Like, you're absolutely correct to be concerned about that. And when, when I say government intervention, I don't have the answer of, like, what is the right way to for the government to be intervening. But I definitely think that what it shouldn't be is, like, a rushed, unintentional kind of like, well, we got to do something, so let's just do something. When it comes to platform moderation, that is like the worst thing you can do. I I have so many times people have been like, oh, well, the solution should be that everybody should use their full legal names on platforms. That kind of like creates a problem for a lot of trans folks, a lot of sex workers, a lot of activists. There are plenty of reasons that are totally legitimate that somebody wouldn't want to show up online using their, you know, government name. Absolutely. And so, it's really important to make sure that when we that we that we're taking a very intentional and intersectional framework so that we're really making decisions where folks are not folks who are already, you know, marginalized are not going to get further criminalized. I think that's definitely like a very salient concern and I guess my my issue is that we're not even really having the conversation. I think that we're not even really, you know, Sometimes it feels like nothing is being done. And then when things are being done, it's bad policies or policies that actually harm people or policies where it seems like how people show up online is not really being taken into effect. And so, yeah, it is it is super complicated. I think this is these conversations are exactly why I find it so interesting that somebody like Elon Musk thinks that they could he can like waltz in and just like know the right answers. People have been debating what the right answers are. For decades, content moderation yeah. is incredibly complicated. So, yeah, it's it's rough. I think there's always going to be people who want to exist outside of it, just because I feel like science fiction, you know, we spent a good portion of the 90s and early 00s, uh, you know, shining light on and highlighting the life of the hacker, the life of the Neo from the Matrix. Like, I think we've we've got like a good group of people who are exceptionally paranoid and who are like, I don't want any regulation on what I do. And actually, the the less regulation, the better. Yeah, I grew up idolizing those people, the people yeah. in like black hoodies who were like hunched over a laptop and like maybe they had some fingerless gloves in the mix, you know, like that kind of vibe. So I, I definitely and like that was the spirit that drew me to the Internet in the first place, that that mm-hmm. spirit of like people who are independent, people who operate outside of like who operate outside of like, you know, the t- traditional power structures right. or, like off the grid like that. Like that's what drew me to the Internet. Me and too. 
you know, it, it's so funny. Claire Evans has this line in her book where back in the day, you used to, the internet is where you would go to feel anonymous. And now the real world is where you go to feel anonymous. The internet is where you go to feel woefully tethered to your to your public self. I guess I'll put it that way. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I mean, I say things all the time in real life that I would never say online. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like jokes that I know would be so misinterpreted online or like parts of myself that I wouldn't feel comfortable sharing with the public. And like, mm-hmm. yeah, I feel like that's so true in so many ways. <laughs> and I'm just like... Getting back to like the personal of it all, you know, like you spoke about like the disinformation even just in or I guess the misinformation more in in your family group chats. And so with these people that we know in real life and we know that they're not ill-intentioned, but that they are sharing things that we can kind of figure out maybe are not true. What is the best way to to respond to that? You know, if somebody shares something with you and, and your your reaction is this isn't true, but you know if you just say, hey, that's not true, they're going to get defensive or it could cause a conflict. You know, how do you kind of navigate that in your personal relationships? This is a great question. And I, I wish that it, I, I wish that I could say that it never comes up for me, but it comes up quite a bit. <laughs> First is really recognizing that disinformation, conspiracy theories, misinformation, the reason why they are so effective is because they're they're emotional and they're they're personal. And so if you are scrolling Facebook and you see that your mom has posted something that you know is not true, first like take a minute and like take a deep breath. Don't respond from a place of you know emotionality, I guess I'll put it that way. Because for me, when I see things that are not true, particularly some from someone that I love, that I respect, that I know is smart. My first instinct is like, like my heart races. I'm like, why would they post this? Yeah. And when I, it's never good, right? And so when I respond from that mindset, it turns into one of those things where it's like the comments get really long and then like everybody is seeing it and my cousins are texting me like, what are you arguing with your aunt on Facebook for? Like, what is this? So don't respond from that, that headspace. Just take a minute. Second, I would say, whatever you do, remember that when we engage with content that is not true, we're oftentimes helping it grow more powerful because of the Mm. algorithmic nature of platforms. The more you engage with it, comment on it, the more this platform is going to think like, oh, people want to see this. I will, you know, boost it in the feed. And so, you know, don't engage with it. You're just making it grow more powerful. I would say if you have a personal relationship with the person who posted it, try reaching out, you know, in private, like send them a DM, text them. And you know, make sure that you're giving them accurate information. But also, a lot of times when people are posting conspiracy theories or inaccurate information, there's some kind of emotional reason why why this is resonating with them. Maybe they're feeling isolated. Maybe they're feeling scared. Maybe they're feeling, you know, un- unseen or overlooked. And, and this piece of, of inaccurate content is speaking to a need in them. So if this is someone that you truly care about, it's worth it to investigate what that need is. Like, what is motivating you to be to be to find this resonant when it's not accurate information? Um, all of that is to say, like, these are this is how I would handle it if this is someone that you love. If it's someone that you don't know that well, I feel like I, I would say that talking to your loved ones about mis and disinformation can be hard and draining, and it can take a lot of energy. And I would only really express that energy for someone that you had a a real relationship with, right? Like, if you wanted to combat every piece of inaccurate information that you saw on social media, you would be a very unhappy, like, you, you would not be having a good time. So I would never recommend somebody do that, because it would just be like, 
take up your whole day and you would not be having a nice time. <laughs> no, I love that. And I think it's, you know, I think that that's so true what you're saying, you know, that they are responding to something and that it might not be obvious to us at first what that something is. But a lot of it is, I think, people feeling so lost and, and disconnected and then feeling like, oh, well, this is a way that I can help, even if they're actually harming. Totally. I see that a lot with, um, weirdly enough, I feel like Save the Children oh, slash QAnon We were going to say that. Abortion, yeah. too. It's oh, like, yeah. always like, you can always rely on I'm saving kids. Yes. And it's it's so interesting, Gabby, when you were talking earlier about, like, Anita Bryant, her campaign, even though it was completely built on lies, had that that sort of, we're doing this to save kids, like, narrative. And how often has that been used, been used as a justification to justify a lot of hateful, harmful stuff? Yeah. While we also live in a country with a, uh, a formula shortage, right? Like, we make... We make choices that harm kids every day. You don't have to fa- if you're if you want to save the children, you don't have to fabricate a, you know, a boogeyman to do that. Children are being harmed every day by things that we should combat and we don't. And so there are so many, but it, it's one of those things where it's like it's so hard to combat things like capitalism or um, you know, institutional harm or, you know, messed up policies, oil lobbies, environmental dumping stuff in the lakes and rivers and oceans so that kids drink it. <laughs> exactly. Blame, blame, having a convenient boogeyman to blame in trans folks or queer folks or immigrants or whoever is so much easier than combating some of these like big thorny complex harms that are actual true harms to children every day. Look, I care about the kids, and that's why I'd like you to play a game show that'll save so many lives. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, thank God. I was so worried. Right, yeah. The playing hypotheticals, it saves a life with every game. Um, And and that's where you should put your attention, not in actual, you know, paid parental leave and having (laughs) free child care. (laughs) I've seen those Sarah McLaughlin commercials about hypotheticals, and I believe that. (laughs) Okay, so hypotheticals is a game show where you and Gabby are my contestants. I'm going to give you a series of hypothetical situations. You can ask any clarifying questions you might have, and then you tell me what you would do in that situation, and then I get to decide who's the answer I like best and which reality I want to live in. (laughs) Okay, I love it. Okay, so our first game is America's favorite game show. Would you stay with this cheater? Your partner of four years is an investigative journalist who is in the midst of recording a podcast about a criminal syndicate. While investigating, one of their potential sources mistakenly thinks that they are married to their podcast producer. And this makes them warm up to your partner because they think they make a lovely couple. Your partner then keeps up the facade and makes out with their podcast producer in front of the potential source to really seal the deal and get the source to open up. Would you stay with this cheater? They do use tongue. Is this, do you just want to make out with Melissa? (laughs) (laughs) Only if she'll do an investigative podcast with me. God, you know, it's almost like when you have a partner who's like a detective and they go undercover and it's like, you can't really know what they did undercover. And so, gosh, I don't really know. I guess, 
I guess I would I would stay because I would be like, you were doing the greater good. You were uncovering this crime. Yeah, I would stay. Uh, it would eat me up inside. I would stay because, like, I've, I have always wanted to, like, like, the idea of having a partner who, like, goes undercover and, like, I, I would be so fascinated by that. I would find that to be weirdly appealing, I think. <laughs> <laughs> like, I've always wanted to be in, like, a... Like an old, an old like noir detective film, and so yeah. I feel like I, I would be, I would be weirdly excited by the, the, the proximity to anything involving that. <laughs> Melissa did bring up a good point when I sent these to her, where she said, "Why did they have to make out? Couldn't they just have held hands?" That's true, but it doesn't really sell it. Doesn't really sell it. Do you think the tongue was necessary? Yeah, I do. <laughs> I do think that, and I'm okay with it. <laughs> All right. Well, I have to. Is tell- the podcast is the podcast producer hot? Ooh, like, good question. One of the most attractive people you've ever seen in your life. Wow, jealous. Oh, it would give me such a complex. I would bring it up like a goddamn egg timer. Like, oh, mm, you're enjoying your breakfast. Well, did you enjoy that tongue in your mouth? Like, it would be. <laughs> I would bring it up like a goddamn egg timer every eight hours. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I said I was. I said jealous to be like I'm jealous. I want to make out with the podcast producer. <laughs> me too. <laughs> Yeah, come on. Okay, well, I guess it's nice that you stayed, except that that source lied about everything. And then when the podcast comes out, the, they their career is ruined because they posted a lot of misinformation. Oh, no! Huge twist. <laughs> yeah, well, it's my fault for believing a leader of a crime syndicate. <laughs> well, your, your partner did. Oh, right. My partner believed them. I'm not a part of this. What's my job in this scenario? You um, work and own a, a, a boutique knitting store. Oh, how nice for me. Yeah, you have great clientele. All right. <laughs> Our next game. Are you a terrible parent? You notice that your five-year-old is getting pretty rude and makes a lot of demands. In order to combat this, you say that you will not listen to any of their requests unless they say, Pretty, pretty, please. I swear I will say thank you at the end of any or all requests. This works great at home until they come home from school one day crying because they thought they had to say it always. And everyone in class made fun of them when they raised their hand and said, may I go to the bathroom? Pretty, pretty, please. I swear I will say thank you. Are you a terrible parent? (laughs) Yes. Yes, you are. That kind of memory sticks with you. It's like calling your teacher mom. You never get oh. over it. You feel off. You, it's horrible. It does. I'm going to say you're not a terrible parent. And I say this because I am not a parent, but I just spent a week with a very demanding six-year-old. And every, t- every time that I, like he asked me for something, he'd be like, give me this, give me that. And eventually I was like, really salty about it. So I'm going to say you're not a terrible parent because toddlers can be kind of demanding. You really, you really, as the adult, you really have no recourse to like do anything about it. You just have to take it. (laughs) Okay, but I think you should let your kid know what they can say at home versus what they can say in public. Like in fifth grade, I told my whole class that my dad had a bookie and nobody told me I wasn't allowed to say that. (laughs) (laughs) But did anyone know what that meant? was? My teachers did, and they were very upset. 
and I didn't know that I wasn't allowed to say that. Oh my! What did you do this weekend? My dad's bookie came over. <laughs> Were your teachers like? Something's going on at their house. We got to like. <laughs> a teacher pulled me aside and was like, you can't talk about that here. And I was like, but they, she didn't really say why. And then even later on in life, that bookie turns out Coke dealer. So you know what? <laughs> Woo! Tell my kids what they're allowed to say or not allowed to say. Oh, imagine if you would come to school like, oh, yeah, the Coke dealer came. <laughs> I would have truly thought that it was Coca-Cola. Like I was, I would have truly been like the Coke g- guy. Like yeah. I would not know what that was. I get that. I probably would yeah. have until I was like 15. I'm- yeah, absolutely. hundred <laughs> percent. Maybe even 18. Definitely. I I say that you're a medium parent because I do think that having that qualifier of, of this is what we say at home could have helped. Agreed. Agreed. We say this at home, but not in person, but not. Yeah. Okay. Our final game. Would you forgive this liar? You go on a date with someone you met online and halfway through your first date, you compliment them on their voice because it's so deep and sexy. Flash forward to four weeks later when you go to meet their friends for their fir- for the first time and one of their friends says to your date, why the fuck are you talking like that? <laughs> it comes out that when you first met them, they were recovering from a cold and that wasn't their natural voice. But since you complimented it, they decided to keep talking that way to keep you interested and attracted to them. Would you forgive this liar? Is this person a cis man? Okay, can I give you yes and also no? And how does your answer change? Because I would, uh, if it's a cis man, I would be like, okay, that's weird. But I, or if, Or a cis woman. But if it's but trans people are are messing with their voices all the time, trying on different voices all the time, vocal training. So I would give that a pass. But if it was if it's a cis person, they do not get a pass. And honestly, you can hold on to that answer for most of these hypotheticals. (laughs) (laughs) I have like a good rule of thumb. If it's a cis man, they probably don't need any more passes. (laughs) Yeah. And if it's anyone else, I get it. Just like a very good standard. Also, what the what the hell with that? That friend is not an like that friend going, what the fuck is wrong with your voice? Or why are you talking like that? Bitch, if I bring a new person around, whatever I say is true. <laughs> you better get what? on board. <laughs> yeah, I would question the like the level of friend. Yeah. Yeah. I, exactly. It's like if you have a question, ask me about it later. But clearly I have a new person here. So be cool. Yeah. If my new person comes up to you, Allison, and is like, it's so wild that you guys like uh, fought a shark in, you know, Nicaragua. You best say, yeah, it was crazy. That's why you don't introduce me to people, because I can't lie like that. I would be like, what shark? We've never been to Nicaragua. Allison, whose side are you on? The truth. Oh, my God. Bullshit. But I would say, I would say, oh, haha, that's Gabby's bravado and loose grip on reality. Aren't those things attractive? Wow. <laughs> or you could just say, oh, it wasn't me. You know, it might have been another friend. Yeah. Now I'm really wondering. This is why I, I, I know you're dating people, but I have no idea who. So it must be because of this. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you off. I'll tell you off, Mike. OK, good. <laughs> I want the hot goss. <laughs> This is how Gab, how it's revealed that like Gabby doesn't bring suitors around Allison because <laughs> Allison won't back up the shark lie. I yeah, wouldn't. I wouldn't. I'm sorry, That's, I wouldn't. 
And so I hope they don't listen to this podcast. Now they'll know the whole shark story was a fabrication. <laughs> Wait, Bridget, would you back up a lie? Like if you met a friend's partner, like new oh, partner? I mean, disinformation, Bridget says no. Friend Bridget says absolutely, of course. <laughs> yeah. whatever, whatever you say, Isn't that it is. Isn't it so wild that Bridget has three degrees? Like a yep. ro- is a rocket scientist and an engineer and a neurologist. And then yes. all of us go, Yeah. <laughs> That's that's our B. That's How our Bridget. How did she have the time? <laughs> yeah, people shouldn't introduce me to their potential partners. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness! Thank you so much for joining us. This was such a wonderful episode. Where can people find out more about all the amazing things that you're doing? Well, you can listen to my podcast on iHeartRadio called There Are No Girls on the Internet. You can find it wherever you typically find podcasts. You know the drill. Uh, you can find me on Instagram at Bridget Marie in DC or on Twitter at Bridget Marie. Amazing. Thank you so much. What a great convo. Loved it. This was super fun, y'all. I really appreciate it. Woo! Stick around after the break. We'll be talking all about the Supreme Court. No. Just between us, it's time for topics. X X X X X X X baby, 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 baby. Oh, Melissa, that was fancy. Were you Thanks. scatting? Uh, I wouldn't say that was quite scatting, but you know, I just felt it in my soul and went with it. Wow, <laughs> it's good because we were talking about church before this, and yeah. I feel like you just the spirit moved a, you yeah, exactly. <laughs> it was a. Real experience, religious experience. I'm going to do this whole segment in tongues. Oh, my God. Please don't. Anyway, (laughs) speaking of religion being part of everyone's goddamn business, the Supreme Court. That was a good segue, to be honest. It really was. (laughs) So we're obviously, or maybe not so obviously, but I pretty obviously talking about this because of, of the leaked decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. And I had originally thought of making the topic just that. But mm-hmm. I think he's talking about just the Supreme Court in general and this like massive power that they have over our lives and it being just nine people, three of which were appointed by Trump in a four year term. Mm-hmm. And and just like, well, why? <laughs> like, you know, I feel I know. like it's it's a very confusing part of our our democracy, in my opinion. Yeah. I don't know why it's handled the way it is. It's like, it's a governing body that I don't think should exist. (laughs) Like, I think it's one of those things where they're like, it feels to me the same as when someone's like, but the Constitution says, and I'm like, why are we still holding on to this? Right. That is so antiquated. I don't understand. Um, But yeah, so like the, this whole thing of having this court, if you take away the like, we've always had it and you just look back at, you look at it from like a, a, wider view it seems like like it's just dystopian it's Mm -hmm. so weird also the the idea of anything being a lifetime appointee is scary to me it's so scary because there have been some that should have stepped down well we have that right now with clarence thomas clarence clarence thomas should have stepped down like a decade and a half ago been there right also the stuff with his wife is just a big conflict of interest too very bad. Yeah. But also, like, the uh, so many of them, when they were getting interviewed, vetted, for lack of vetted, LOL, they were like, we won't touch Roe. 
Believe, promise we won't. Mm-hmm. Liars. They're liars. They're yeah. liars. All of them. And what do you think about this idea that people are focusing more on the fact that the decision was leaked than the decision itself? Leak it all. Leak everything. I want to know who did the leak, but like, yeah, protect them. Leak yeah. everything. Why do we put these people yeah, away? It shouldn't be. I don't think it should be a secret. If they're doing something, if they're conspiring to do something, that it feels like that's a right for us to know. I love a whistleblower. Snowden, do it up, Snowden. Mm-hmm. I think like, like doing it in secret is so indicative of, of what they thought they were doing, right? Mm-hmm. Like, that's the thing. If you can't make the decision out in the daylight, then like, you know, you know that this is a decision that's harmful. Definitely. And and like this, like immediate reaction to that, that people shouldn't protest outside of Kavanaugh's house and that we have to. It's like, why? <laughs> like, why can't yeah. we protest? Like, why can't we make our anger known? And like it. it and then that the, the Congress like immediately like voted for more security for the Supreme Court justices. Like if they're doing decisions that are making the general public that angry and that scared and that worried that their rights are being taken away. Hey, maybe they shouldn't be making those decisions. The public and it's the majority of the public. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's hard because I, this is like a a tangent maybe, but I'm obviously like very pro gun control, but I do worry about like the, in the, in, in the original constitution, which I think we can throw out, but in it, the reason for the Second Amendment was so that tyranny didn't happen, right? Mm-hmm. So that the, the people could always defend themselves so that the, peop- the government answered to the people versus the people answering to the government. That was part of it. And now it's like, don't protest outside their house. Don't, like, we need to put more security on the Supreme Court. But, like, no, like, they should be answering to the people that they are affecting. Like, if you're going to make that decision, then you should be responsible to the people who are able to rise up and be like, we don't like this decision. And that's um, that's like part of democracy is that it's not like a fascist situation where I mean, it leads it, it lends itself to fascism, right? Because the president who is elected, but the president is allowed to appoint these people who have a lot of power to lifetime appointments. That's mm-hmm. a dictatorship. Interesting. I haven't thought about it that way. Conspiracy corner. One of the things that's so tricky about our country is that there is this belief that we have to, like Gabby was speaking to, this belief that we have to stay true to the original vision of the country. But the original vision of the country was just for white men. Mm -hmm. And so this whole thing of like, oh, America, America has never been about, you know, abortion. It's like, well, because America wasn't built to care about the rights of people with who who couldn't have an abortion, you know? Yeah, like, yeah. America was not founded f- to to take care of all of the citizens that mm-hmm. now live in America and always lived in America. And so it's this idea of like, oh, we must look to our, our founding fathers and their vision, but their vision is inherently flawed. Oh, obviously. I mean, I'm watching, so I'm like researching a lot of stuff about the 1920s right now for a show I'm working on. And I also um, am watching Boardwalk Empire because I love to be on the pulse. And like- In that show, there's a whole thing about, like, trying to access birth control and not being able to. And, like, the the, like in the 1920s, you could be arrested for selling a condom. Like, it's 
wild. And I always wonder, like, with this with this Roe v. Wade stuff, like, do cis men not want to have sex? Like, I don't understand. Like, do they not want to get laid? Do they? How many of them pop on Reddit? I'm on a lot of Reddit forums. Pop over to Reddit and go, oh, my God, like, I don't want to be trapped by some woman or like, you know, I saw a girl told me that she was on birth control. And then these are these are these harpies out there trying to, like, trap good men or whatever. Like, so what is what is it that you want? You want to not have sex. I don't understand. It's like Alyssa Strada. Like, what is going on? Well, I think this also brings up that fact that our rights are never guaranteed when we have something like the Supreme Court, right? And right. so what are you guys worried about also being struck down? I mean, I think I think they're going to come for gay marriage. It looks mm-hmm. like they're coming for all forms of, not forms of, of you know, abortion AIDS, but forms of contraception in general. Yeah. Isn't there a Arizona, maybe an Arizona lawmaker that's trying to get rid of condoms, as you said? There's definitely some stuff going on with I with IUDs, yeah, which are IUDs which too. are contraception. Mm-hmm. Like for what reason? Like, do they not understand? Like, maybe they just think like, well, I'm gonna have sex with my mistress and she'll be able to get an abortion. But like, what are you? What is the end game here? I truly don't know. I've seen some reasoning that forced childbirth is a way to maintain a lower class. And that it's a way to make sure that there will always be people who are disenfranchised and living in poverty so that they can so there's take workers. these workers. Lo- so there's workers. Hmm. Good Lord. And so that capitalism can continue to exist where you can get your products for cheap and things and, you know, because you're not right. paying people fairly because they're not being, you know, because they have to take what whatever jobs are available and that it's a way to maintain this lower class um, through forced birth. Jesus Christ. I wonder for gay marriage, if there are enough powerful gay married celebrities that maybe there would be some protection. Oh. I can't like they're going to do that to Neil Patrick Harris. They love Neil Patrick Harris. I don't I don't think anything is safe. I really I don't. don't. Think so I, either. Think- I mean, even in the recent Katanji Brown Jackson in her. Do they call it a hearing? Is that what it is? Yeah, her her vetting, her yeah, confirmation, yeah. Vetting someone brought up interracial marriage in it. Like I like I don't think anything is safe. Jesus. No, I really I think that that's the trajectory. I think the trajectory is to get rid of contraceptions, to get rid of gay marriage, to even get rid of interracial marriage to like it's bad and and I think that one solution is to expand the court. But I just don't know if if the Democrats have the balls to do that. I don't think they do. Then what's the end? The, what What is the end game? Just a complete like America is behind every country and like just complete disaster. And that's it. I'm not sure. I mean, it's really tricky because like everyone's like, oh, thank God, like Trump didn't win a second term. But his legacy remains in the courts. Yep. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And he's going to run again. Yeah. And I think he might win. It's I really so terrifying. Too. I really do, too. And so I think it is like, I guess I'm not sure the answer. I think the answer is like really supporting the people who are doing the work on the ground, you know, supporting these abortion funds that already exist, Mm -hmm. really voting locally for, you know, Mm -hmm. that making sure that our at least at the very least that our state legislators, you know, legislators aren't as conservative as these people in Mm -hmm. certain states. And and it's because I think a lot of stuff is going to go back to quote unquote states rights. States Um, rights. Yeah. Which is really scary. Mm -hmm. And 
I don't know. I mean, I don't want to be alarmist, but I also do because I don't think it is alarmist. I think that no, I, the thing that I'm getting realist. really worried about is is so many, you know, Democrats seem to think, oh, they that they won't come for this. They uh-huh. won't come for that. But it's not uh-huh. true. They are absolutely coming for it. And we have to be prepared and we have to fight back. We have to fight back in the way that they fight, which is not, you know, they don't fight know. in a clean way. I we know. have to fight dirty because otherwise we're just going to lose all of our rights that we fought so hard to get yeah. in the first place. Yeah. I know. <laughs> I know you've been saying that for years, Allison. But it's true. It's like, yeah. sure, if you're playing, if you have an even playing field, play right. fairly. But if you don't, you got to do what you got to do to win. And Agreed. there's just such resistance of, around because I don't think people want to accept the reality of what's happening because it's too right. scary. Yeah. Right. And they want to be like, but we're but we're civilized. We're the Democrats. And it's like but also it's like, what is a Democrat? <laughs> what does that even exactly. mean? Uh, so it's scary. I don't know. I'm, I've been terrified. I have I'm on Reddit a lot and I had to unsubscribe from a lot of the uh, subreddits that I was in just because like it's things that I agree with, but it was just too much for me to take in right now. Yeah. Like I'm legitimately scared. I have a bunch of plan B at my house. If anyone needs, I've got some too. Yeah. Come for me, government come raid my house for plan B. No, California passed laws to protect California. We're going to have to be like shepherding queer kids across state lines. They've passed the, so it's a sanctuary state. So why are we? Why is that even a? Ugh. Well, I look forward to the no, the new civil war. Oh, gosh, <laughs> I mean, look, I'm not. I I can't say with full confidence that something like that's not going to happen. I know yeah. that's what I'm saying. Yeah, I'm going to get really good at letter writing, like how they were in the civil war. Okay, <laughs> and so they can't track you, my dearest Allison. The front lines have been very difficult. War is among us. President Lincoln says, you know, in script. Mm-hmm. We have another President Lincoln? Yeah, it's President Lincoln. <laughs> what happened was we raised Lincoln from the grave and he was okay. very upset. He said, why did you do this to me? And then we said that we need you to be president again. And then he was like, I'm a Republican. And then we had to give him a whole conversation. I was about to say the same thing. <laughs> but that meant something else. I know. That meant say, something else. It switched. He's upset. Yeah, he's real mad. He's really mad. Also, we can't find his hat. So it's a whole disaster. <laughs> it's in the Smithsonian. We can get it. Don't worry. I think we could do better than Lincoln. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Very true. <laughs> well, what do I rate this episode? Uh, 11 out of 10 bummers. <laughs> <laughs> I'll give it 20 out of 10. I'm scared shitless. And I'll give it 35 out of 12 fight dirties. <laughs> Dirty fights. Dirty, Dirty fights. <laughs> Thank you to Bridget Todd for being our guest. Just Between Us is a Forever Dog production hosted by me, Allison Raskin. And me, Gabby Dunn. Produced by Melissa Diamond Monts. Edited by Coco Lorenz. Executive produced by Brett Bohm, Joe Cilio, Alex Ramsey, and Tracy Soren. Rented Burns composed our killer theme music. To listen to this podcast ad-free, sign up for Forever Dog Plus at foreverdogpodcast.com slash plus. And check out video clips of our podcast on YouTube at youtube.com slash foreverdogteam or on our channel, youtube.com slash justbetweenusshow. Make sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Forever Dog Team to keep up with all the latest Forever Dog news. Also at Allison Raskin, at she is not Melissa at Gabby Road on Instagram. Also, uh, Substack for emotional support lady for Allison and patreon.com slash Gabby Dunn for me. Bye! Bye! Forever! Yeah.